Good evening. Hey, I got a, I got a request. Um, I'm not going to put on a hula skirt, so don't, don't get panicked about that. I've had several guys ask me. I've asked them to leave the men's ministry. Um, as you can tell, we've got kids camp going on all across the campus, and uh, it's been going on all week. And a lot of, the, quite a few of the guys are serving. Anybody you see with the glazed eyes and, and sunburn, they're working kids camp. We have one more day tomorrow, and so what I need you to do when, when you're done with your discussion, if you would stack your chairs eight to a, uh, a stack, and then fold up the table and turn it over and just lay it on the ground. That's all you have to do. And try to do it if there's other guys still meeting, which I know Bruce's table, they meet till midnight. Um, just try to be as quiet as you possibly can um, when you do it. But eight chairs to a stack, just do the chairs around your table and then turn, fold the table up and just lay it top down and then the, the facilities crew will uh, take care of the rest. But that would help us tremendously, okay? And if you see some tables up there that haven't been done, just do those as well. So that's all I got. All right, let's pray and then we're going to get into chapter 7 of Matthew. Well, Father, we come to you this evening. We're grateful for the food. We're grateful for uh, the air conditioning. And Lord, we're uh, grateful for the opportunity just to come together with other men and study your word. And I pray that tonight as we open up Matthew chapter 7 that you would speak to us through it and that, Father, we would, uh, as always, be changed by it and that we would learn to apply what we hear to our lives. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for salvation. And we thank you for uh, one another, that we have this thing called the body of Christ. And I'm grateful for these men. And I just pray that they would walk away uh, encouraged and blessed and challenged by what they hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 7. This is the uh, fifth of six weeks. Next week will be the last week. We're going to read uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through uh, 14. And then we'll finish up next week with the rest of the chapter. <clears throat> And then we'll, uh, just to remind you, we'll take a break until uh, the first week of September. Then we'll be back in here uh, th Thursday nights, and we'll be back in the mornings on Thursday morning. And we're going to do a study on uh, the Reformation. It's called, I'm calling it the 500-year war because it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And a lot of what was battled there is still being battled today and still inf influences our lives today. So we're going to unpack some of the key doctrines of the Reformation and why they're still important and why we need to still be fighting for them even in the culture today. So that'll be taking place in the fall. All right, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? 
If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, you can tell just by reading those 14 verses that um, there's a little bit of what seems to be a disconnect in, in these, these verses, that it, it's almost, they come across almost like parables, uh, like short, pithy statements that don't seem to fit together. Because he starts talking out about judging one another, specks in your eye and logs in your eye, and then he starts talking about dogs and pigs and pearls and swine, and then he goes on to the golden rule. It's like, good grief, can't you stay focused? Um, well, it's Jesus. He can teach any way he wants to teach. But it's interesting, a lot of the commentators... Um, take this particular chapter and they say that it probably wasn't part of the original Sermon on the Mount. And the reason they say that is because they think that it's too too disjointed. They think that Matthew took other sayings of Jesus and tacked them onto the Sermon on the Mount. I see no reason to reach that conclusion because I do think this passage all fits together and hopefully it'll make more sense as we dig into it tonight. So what we've been saying over the last five weeks has been this idea that Jesus is bringing a revolution. He's, he's establishing something new on the earth. He's new to the earth in terms of coming as a man. He's God in the flesh. Um, and anytime you bring a revolution, revolutions breed rebels. And always, not always good rebels. So when you start a revolution... Everybody wants to get in on the act, and, and they may have a bone to pick or you know, something they want to do that's totally different than what the original people who started the revolution want to do, but they want to get in the act. And I think what we're going to look at tonight is Jesus trying to address the crowd as he's talked about all this stuff thus far, the Beatitudes and everything he said. He knows the natural human tendency is to take what he says and either take it out of context or take it to a place he didn't intend. So when you have rebels or revolution, rebels come out of the woodwork, and everybody wants to rebel. You know, I've been reading a lot about the uh, Reformation in preparation for the fall, and it's, pretty, it's a pretty fascinating period of time because during the, Revo- the Reformation, you know, Martin Luther, who was one of the key figures, obviously, when he nailed those 95 theses on the, the door of... Uh, the church in Wittenberg, he, he really wasn't trying to start a revolution. He was trying to start a dialogue. He just wanted to, he was an academician. He, he wanted to have a dialogue with people about some of the things he saw as abuses within the Roman Catholic Church. Well, a good friend of his who happened to be on a printing press got a hold of it and he reprinted it and suddenly it was going anywhere and everywhere. And when you study the Reformation, what's really fascinating is we always think of it as just, you know, Roman Catholic Church and the Protestants. But what happened was it bred revolution across the map. Suddenly you had peasants who revolted, and 100,000 100, of them were, were killed because they tried to rebel against their masters. They were serfs. 
And Luther didn't think they were doing the right thing, but everybody suddenly was a rebel. Everybody wanted to change everything. Not only the church, they wanted to change the government. They wanted to change society. And so this idea that revolutions always attract rebels is true then, it's true in Jesus' day, it was true in Martin Luther's day, it's true in our day. That you see people who get all up in arms about things, and sometimes they get out of whack. They get off the beaten path. So revolutions appeal to those who are extreme kind of constitutions. They're just naturally attracted to those things. And they get dissatisfied. I don't, not only do I not like what the church is doing, I don't like what the government's doing, I don't like what the king's doing, I don't like what anybody's doing. And they just revolt. They rebel. Once again, Jesus knows what's going on. So here's, here's what he's said so far. Remember, we're, we're first century Jews. We're standing on that hillside listening to Jesus, this rabbi, this healer, speak. And we've heard him talk about these things. He's talked about lust, anger, taking of oaths, don't take oaths. He's talked about um, judging others and this idea of retaliation against others, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's talked about a lot of different things. He's talked about loving your enemies. He's talked about exposing false righteousness in your life. Don't judge other people and don't try to make yourself look righteous when you're really not. You know, he talked about the uh, Pharisees wanting to have the best seats in the, in the temple and people who pray to be seen and people who give to be seen and to get the pat on the back and what a wonderful Christian you must be. He's warned against laying up treasures on earth. Don't do it. Don't put your money here. Don't put all your emphasis here. It should be in the kingdom. And then he's labeled anxiety as a lack of trust in God, which we looked at last week. How easy it is for us to worry about things and not trust in God. And then last week we also looked at this idea of divided allegiance. So Jesus has been working his way through the Sermon on the Mount. Now he's gotten to chapter 7. And he kind of changes gears a little bit. And I think he's addressing people in the crowd who he knows are going to be tempted to take what he's saying the wrong way. So he's going to address three issues that we want to look at tonight that I think are found in these 14 verses. The first one is judgmentalism. And he's going to just come right out and say, judge not. Okay? And we're going to unpack that and find out what he really is saying there and what he's not saying. Because I think that's almost as, as important as what he is saying. So judgmentalism. Verse 6, this tendency towards tolerance. Right? We, we hear that word all the time in our society now. We have to tolerate everything. We are indiscriminating. We, just, we don't want to discriminate against anyone or anything. And, and we as Christians are being labeled as both discriminatory and intolerant. And we're going to see what Jesus has to say about that. And then the last warning he's going to have is about the, the habit of self-sufficiency. And it's really interesting that this one is particularly interesting to me because in all that Jesus has said in chapter 5 and chapter 6, he's kind of told us what the kingdom life should look like. Those who are approved of God, this is how you should behave because you have been made right with God. You are now approved by God. You don't have to do anything to earn his favor. Everything you do is out of love for him and out of gratitude to him. And yet how we will become self-sufficient as Christians. And we said this every week thus far. We've said you cannot do any of the things found in the Sermon on the Mount in the flesh. You can't do it. You may do it for a day. You may do it for a week, maybe a month. But you will ultimately fail. 
And so the idea that we think we can be self-sufficient as Christians is the most absurd thing that we could ever believe or think. And Jesus is going to talk about it. But the first thing we want to look at is judgmentalism. So he says, do not judge others and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. So it seems pretty clear what he's saying. Do not judge. Okay, but we got to be real careful because if we're not careful, we're going to take this to a place I don't think it needs to be taken and contradicts other passages in Scripture, particularly the New Testament. So Jesus knew there was going to be a problem. Okay, he's, he's taught for however long it's taken him to get to this point. He said all the things we just covered, and then he says, do not judge. Why would he say that? Because he knew they were going to judge. They, he knew their propensity because he knows the hearts of men, right? He knows what they're going to be prone to do. You know, he's talked about, you know, um, not having, having anxiety, not laying up treasures on this earth, which is a natural tendency. If you hear Jesus say, don't lay up treasures on earth, and you're a poor person, who do you judge? Anybody who's got treasures laid up on earth. And you can just see, they're probably out in the crowd, and Jesus can see them already looking around going, yeah, look at, yeah, look at him. Look at his clothes. Have you seen his chariot? Yeah. His house is incredible. He's laying up treasures on earth. He's not really a Christian. Nobody was a Christian. But he's not righteous. And they, he can see and he knows their hearts that they're going to start judging. Jesus knew Jeremiah. He knew the words of Jeremiah because these are the words of God. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? What's the answer to that question? God knows. And because Jesus is God, Jesus knows. And so as Jesus is standing there looking over that crowd of however many people there were, he knows and he can see into their hearts and he knows there's people out there judging one another already, looking down their noses at each other over just the things he's seen. He's got meek people judging the non-meek people. He's got, you know, wealthy people judging the poor people. He's got everybody starting to judge because they've heard it through their filter. So God knows how bad it is. Jesus knows how bad it is. And so he says, do not judge. So here's what I think is happening. You've got poor judging the rich. You've got the weak judging the strong. You know, remember it said, blessed, approved by God are the meek or the weak. And that word doesn't really mean weak as physical, but those who are willing to submit. But they're starting, you know, anybody who hears the word meek, even in our day, and I think in their day, thinks of weakness and not having a lot of power. That's not what Jesus meant, but I can see people judging somebody who has power and authority. You know, the, the person who feels pushed by the government or pushed by the Pharisees, the religious leaders, starts judging them because they're taking the words of Jesus out of context. You've got the gentle who are going to judge the powerful. You've got the content, if there were any in the crowd, judging those who were anxious or covetous. And the truth is, I don't think anybody's ever truly content, you know, because of our sin nature. But some were probably thinking, well, I'm okay with where I am, but he's not. Look at him. He's co it's written all over his face. He's covetous. 
The confident would judge the anxious, and everybody's judging everybody because that's the way we're wired. And you know it's true because we all do it, right? We all judge one another. You can come to church and just judge people by the cars they drive and just look down your nose. I've told this story a thousand times. I remember years ago when Hummers first came out, um, men's Bible study, it was a Wednesday morning, and there was like a third of the number of guys uh, in this room that were there. And I remember when I drove up, there was this black Hummer, like the big honking, gas-guzzling Hummer. And it was just like covered in chrome and just, it was gorgeous. And I don't know what possessed me, but in the middle of my talk, I made some comment about uh, this car. You know, that, you know who, would, who would need to drive a car like that? And, I, and it didn't dawn on me. The only people at the church that day were sitting in that room. You know, it's like, and I, here's what I said. When I see a car like that, I want to take my key and go down the side of it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it gets worse. Because the guy who owned it came up to me afterwards. And he goes, do you really want to key my car? I went, what, what are you talking about? He goes, you said you wanted to key my car. And then it's like, oh, that's your, that's your car. And he goes, yeah. I said, oh, no, I was just, I was just kidding. And then it got really awkward. And, uh, <laughs> but, in, you know, there was a part of me that was, you know, it was just an illustration. At least that's what I tried to tell him. And I just prayed his car would not get keyed in the next few weeks. Um, but there was a part of my heart that was like, really? You know, couldn't you just take that money and give it to charity like me? I mean, what, do you really need a car that big? But we judge so easily. And I think Jesus, what, what Jesus is talking about is this looking down our noses at others. And sometimes we judge others based on we want to find fault of them when there's really not even any fault there because it makes us feel better. It, it somehow lifts us up. But what I want to kind of just jump into real quickly is what I don't think Jesus is saying, because again, I think this is so important. This is not talking about judging sin. Me, me having a problem with somebody driving a really nice car that I don't think they need and they spent too much money on it has nothing to do with sin. I have no idea what was in that man's heart when he bought that car. Could he have done it out of greed and covetousness? You know, I, maybe, but I don't know. I'm not God. So I have no right to judge him. But if I saw that man with another woman in his arms who was not his wife, I have an obligation to judge that man. See, we got to be really careful that we read this verse and we go, well, I... I'm not, Jesus said, don't judge. You know, years ago, we were in a small group, and there was a man in our small group, a man and his wife, and they had a little girl, and we were all fairly close. We were probably in our 20s, all in our 20s, and he was a pilot for American Airlines, good-looking, good tall guy, six-foot-four, beautiful wife, beautiful daughter, and every time we got together, we always met in our home, and every time we got together, this guy weirded out every woman in our group. Now, I didn't know that, but I knew he weirded out my wife because every night we met, she, later she'd go, he creeps me out. Like, what do you, 
how does he creep you out? You just, the way he looks at me, and he always, he always hugs me awkwardly, and I just, he just creeps me out. I just feel creepy around him. I don't, there's something about him. And then the way he treats his wife, and I'm, I'm like oblivious. I'm like, what do you mean the way he treats his wife? He talks down to her. Do you not hear him? Uh, no, I, I didn't hear it. And then I just, she goes, you need to talk to him. I'm like, he's like 6'4". What, what am I going to say to him? You know, and she goes, well, it's wrong. And I said, well, you don't know that he's doing anything wrong. How do you know he means something evil in it? Well, this went on week after week after week. And then one week his wife shows up and he doesn't show up. And she tells the crowd that he's left her for another woman. And it was amazing that every woman in our small group went, I knew it. He creeped me out. He was weird. He hugged me all the time. I knew he was doing something. And all the guys were like, huh? What? But every one of us had been told by our wives to say something. And every one of us reneged on the option. We just, we, we weren't going to do it. And that family imploded. See, guys, this, this is real stuff. And we got to be real careful when we read Scripture that we don't just take it and go, huh? can't judge. I get a get-out-of-jail-free card. That guy's committing adultery, but I don't, Jesus said, don't judge. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about judging sin. He's not even addressing sin. The problem that Jesus is addressing is people judging other people who haven't sinned. They're just judging them. They're looking down on them. He's talking about judgmentalism, and we all do it. I don't like the way they dress. I don't, I don't like the way, you know, he's got tattoos all over him. I, don't like, I just don't like it. I remember one Sunday in our sanctuary, it was a Sunday night, and I was standing in the foyer there, and this, I saw this guy walk out. I saw him walk into church. He had on a T-shirt, and he had tats all over his arms, his neck. He was shaved head. And I saw him going to church, and I'm thinking, well, that's not one of our regular customers. He goes in. Ten minutes later, he comes out. And I saw, I saw him walk over. It's when the bookstore used to be down at the bottom of the steps. And he goes over there, and I see him talking to one of the ladies running the bookstore. And then he walked out. And she came over, and she said, well, that was interesting. And I said, what happened? And she said, well, he, he just got out of prison. He came to faith in prison, and he wanted to go to church. He saw this church. He came. He went in. And while they were singing the songs, the hymns, the praise music, an elderly woman standing next to him, all she kept doing was looking, looking at him like this. And he couldn't take it anymore. He just felt like, I, I don't fit in here. So he walked out. And he never came back. See, that's judgmentalism. You don't look like me. I don't like the way you look. There's something wrong with you. I don't like the way you dress. I don't like... It's not anything to do with sin. And what it leads to, if we take this verse wrong, you've said this before, who am I to judge, right? Who am I to judge? Well, let's, let's see what the Bible says about it, because that question applied to this verse forces you to take this verse out of its context, because that's not what Jesus is saying. We try to use it as some kind of a proof text that I'm telling you, even Jesus, out of the lips of the Lord, he said, don't judge, so I'm not going to judge. No, that's not what he said. He's, he's not telling you not to judge. He's telling you not to be judgmental. And there's two different things. Let's look at Paul in Ephesians. 
He's writing to Christians in Ephesians and Ephesus, and he says, Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. So if you're walking around with guys who you know claim to be believers, and they're telling coarse jokes, and they're you know, using bad language, telling racy stories, and you're all chuckling and laughing, and yeah, well, who am I to judge? It's a little awkward, but you know, you're wrong. Paul says, it shouldn't be in here. It shouldn't be in our midst. We shouldn't put up with it. I remember you know, years ago, we had a guy that used to come on uh, Thursday nights, and he, would, uh, he was a believer, at least he claimed to be a believer, but he would drop the F-bomb like every fifth word in the discussion time. And I didn't know about it, but finally one of the table members came up and goes, you know, this is kind of awkward. This guy's got a foul mouth. I said, well, has anybody said anything? No. So you're just going to let him keep doing it? Well, could you talk to him? No. Because you're at his table. Just tell him. You don't appreciate it. It's not appropriate. It's not accepted. We shouldn't do it. Yeah, but he might get upset. Well, you're upset already because of what he's doing. And it's six against one. We got to stand up for what we believe to be true. So Paul goes on and he tells the Corinthians. I love this because listen to what he says. When I wrote you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. Now this tells you he's written a previous letter. And he's told them, don't associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers. That ought to get your attention. Who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. Right? I mean, you, you would basically have to go live in a commune with nobody. Because you can find anybody to live in the commune who doesn't do these things. The people in this world live that way. They, they have those attributes about them. Why? Because they're lost. But he goes on, he says, I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or a drunkard or cheats people. And the inference is those people were in the church and they were perfectly okay with it. Who am I to judge? Well, according to Paul, you're the perfect one to judge. You're part of the body of Christ. Don't even eat with such people. That's not judgmentalism. That is a believer standing up for the cause of Christ and, and demanding that another who claims to be a believer live like what he claims to be. And we all need that in our lives. And then he goes on, he says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. He says, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. Think about what Paul's saying and compare it to what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, judge not. What does he say? It certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are doing what? Sinning. Is that awkward? You bet. Is it uncomfortable? Incredibly. But see, the problem is, because we don't want to step into this in one another's lives, we just keep on sinning. Nobody calls us out. Nobody calls us on the carpet. Nobody goes, that's inappropriate. That's wrong. Had the men in our small group had the guts to do what our wives all told us to do and went to that guy, and maybe it would have taken all of us to go 
and sit them down and go, our wives are creeped out by you. Our wives are fearful of the way you treat them and the way they see you treat your wife, and it's got to stop. Now, he would have had a couple options. One, punch us all, leave, or what? Repent. And maybe, just maybe, that marriage could have been saved. Not saying it would have, would have been saved. But see, there's, there's value in this. Jesus is warning against being judgmental, not judging another believer who is in sin. And, and I hate to belabor the point, but I think it's, it's an important point because I hear too many men say, who am I to judge? See, judgmentalism is a sin. When you judge somebody else and they don't deserve to be judged and they haven't sinned and they've done nothing wrong, you just don't like them or you find fault in them, you don't pray enough, you're not godly enough, you don't dress appropriately enough, you don't do this enough, you don't do that enough, you have your own little set of rules and you judge them, you are the one in sin, not them. And this passage says, and you will be judged accordingly. And what drives judgmentalism, guys, is pride and self-righteousness. When, when you start, and, and for me in my life where it shows up is when I per, feel particularly low. If I'm not feeling good about myself as a dad, all it do, does is take and look, I look around, I found a dad who sucks worse than I do. And they're usually not hard to find. You know, well, gosh, look at him. He's never home. You know, he, psh, that guy's a loser. Look at his kids. They're out of control. I'm okay. I feel better now. That's judgmentalism. That's, self, that's a pride. That's self-righteousness run amok. And so Jesus is talking to these people, and he's telling them this is what the kingdom life looks like, and he knows what they're already doing is starting to judge one another. I'm, I'm okay. You're not. I don't worry. You do. And they're starting to judge one another, and he's going, don't do it. Don't judge. Don't find and expose fault in one another. Why are we so keen on doing that? Why do we like to major on the minors in one another's lives instead of encouraging one another? You know, my wife is, is one of the best at encouraging. She can always find, you know, she's got this little, if you can't say anything positive, don't say anything at all. Well, then I'd never get to talk, you know? But she's always encouraging our kids, and, all, and they're all adults, and she's always encouraging me. And, and she doesn't look for the faults in people. She looks for things to praise. And that's what we need to do. But we love to diminish the value of others because we feel like it raises our value. And it's a dangerous game to play, this idea of exposing the faults in others. Paul goes on in Romans, he says, why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now again, this is talking about what? Not judgment, not judgment for sin. Sin, it's condemning someone. It's looking down your nose at someone who you don't think measures up like you think they need to measure up. Remember, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God, for the Scriptures say, as surely as I live, every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to God. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. Quit looking down your nose at other people and judging them when they don't need to be judged, but judge the sin in one another's lives because if you get them to repent, you've saved a brother from sin. And that's, that's a value. So there's a huge difference between these two things.
So Paul fin finishes up, let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. And this is particularly true, I think, of young believers in the church when they don't understand the Scriptures or they don't get our code and they don't understand how we work and how we dress and how we do things and we look, oh gosh, they are so stupid. You can't find the book of Leviticus in your Bible? What is wrong with you? Well, you may not even be able to find your Bible. Why do we have to look down on it? Why can't we encourage them? Why can't we say, let me help you? But we, we love finding fault in others. And then Jesus makes this kind of weird detour here. And he starts talking about specks and logs. And he says, why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me get you, help you get that speck out of your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? See, there's a direct connection here because judgmentalism is looking for the faults, the tiny little faults and problems in somebody else's life and you wanting to fix it for them. But what does Jesus say? You're a hypocrite. You got a, you got a beam in your eye. And the word here is, is like a, a beam that holds up the roof of a barn. He's got a speck. You've got a log in your eye, a beam in your eye, and you want to help him? You can't even see. You're a hypocrite. Fix your own house. Get your own house in order first before you start judging other people. So he compares this speck and a log, and we want to concentrate on what? The other person's faults, the other person's problems. And we almost find fun in it. That's the sick part. When we can find fault in somebody else. And, and really it just means I don't have to look at me. But you see the absurdity of the, the illustration he gives. You know, speck in one eye, log in the other. And the guy with the log is trying to fix the guy over here. And Jesus is going, you, you got a major problem you need to take care of. And, and he's not saying ignore the speck. He's not saying don't do something about it. Help him. But you got to fix your own problem first. So do some self-examination. One of the things that will help you stop judging other people is you, if you start looking in your own heart and life and seeing where you need to work, where you have weaknesses, where you have problems. And, and I think the best way to do this is to ask God to help. And we've used this verse before in, in uh, past studies, but it's... it's it's not one of my favorites because I, I don't really like it. It's just one that I think has a lot of weight behind it. And it's written by David in Psalm 139. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. I've challenged you guys before. Would you be willing to pray that prayer every morning before your feet hit the floor? Point out, God, anything in me that offends you. You're inviting God to basically take his divine flashlight, shine it into the dark recesses of your heart, and show you things about yourself that you don't even know. That's a scary proposition. Because some really creepy, crawly things are going to come out. And God's going to go, that's a problem, that's a problem, that's a problem. You got some pride issues, you got some self-righteousness going on, and he's going he's to expose and he goes on, he says, lead me along the path of everlasting life. Expose my sin so I can confess it and then lead me in the right direction. See, if you do that, you're not going to have a whole lot of time to be looking at specks in other people's eyes because you're going to be busy 
confessing the sin in your own life and helping and letting God help you clear it up. So he says, hypocrite, get the log out of your own eye. That way you'll be able to help others. And what's really cool about that verse is I really think what Jesus is saying, if you get the log out of your own eye, guess what? You'll stop seeing and worrying about specks, meaningless, minutia, and you'll worry a whole lot more about the heart. What's that guy's heart like? What's his life like? What's his eternal life like? Well, then he goes into the second problem. And this one is probably the one that I think carries the most weight for us in our day and age. And it's this idea of tolerance. Um, we live in an age of tolerance. Nobody can argue that. And the thing that blows me away about it and that I particularly hate about it is that it's always couched in the terms of love. Um, we just need to love everybody. God is love. And that little phrase, God is love, while it's biblical and it's true, has been so misshapen and misused in our society today that it no longer means what it originally mean, meant. So, and I think it's particularly true of millennials. It's not directly attributable to millennials, but millennials have a deep desire to influence, it, which is great. But they also have a deep desire, or not a desire, but a propensity to tolerate and accept. And part of it, I think, it has been driven by an older generation before them that had become really intolerant, truly intolerant, judgmental. And then so they've now become much more tolerant of we just need to love everybody, accept everybody, let them live the life they want to live. We just need to love. God is love. Well, here's the problem with that. What that means, God is love, doesn't mean you can reverse it and say love is God, but that's what they've done. We just need to love. Well, who defines love? God does. I don't get to define love. God is love. God is the essence of love. It is His nature. It's who He is. And you can't have godly love and, and tolerance at the same time. See, tolerance makes no sense. Daniel, when he was here and spoke a month or so ago, made a really good point about this. Tolerance really is kind of a low bar. Tolerance is really kind of silly. If you have kids, when your kids are little, if I went to my kids and say, you know what, I know you want to play in the street, go ahead. I'm a tolerant dad. That's hate. That's not love. When you know it's wrong, when you know it's dangerous, tolerance, that's, that's the lowest standard we could have. It's not godly love. And if you say, well, God is love, really what you're trying to say is that, well, love, 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 you know, love's everything. We just need to love. We need to tolerate. We need to accept. We need to just, they are what they are. We, well, that's not how God loves. God doesn't tolerate sin. God doesn't just put up with anything and everything. And tolerance is totally incompatible with the gospel. He goes on and says, don't give to dogs what is holy and don't throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now he's not, no longer talking about specks and logs. He's talking about pigs. He's talking about swine and pearls. What the heck are you talking about? What, what's his point here? Specks and logs and pigs and dogs. This is another verse we got to be real careful with. Because I've heard people take this verse and say, well, you know, 
you shouldn't go share, share the gospel with, you know, people in a bar because they're, they're, they're swine. You know, you shouldn't go share the gospel with those people. They're pigs and swine and don't cast your pearls before a swine. And we take this verse and we to- take it totally out of context. And that's not, again, what Jesus is saying. So what's he talking about? Well, we know based on scripture and based on even historical evidence that dogs were not pets in Jesus' day. Jews didn't have dogs as pets. They were wild. They were mongrels. They fed on the dump. They ran around in the streets. They were vicious. They attacked. They killed your chickens. They killed your sheep. They didn't like dogs. They were filthy mongrels. They didn't like sheep because God said sheep are unholy. And so both were not thought of in a very good way. Pigs were unclean. Dogs were scavengers. So who's he talking about? See, I think what we do is we look at this verse and we get hung up on the pigs and the dogs and we try to figure out who are the pigs and the dogs. Because I certainly don't want to cast my pearls to pigs and dogs when we should be worrying about what does he mean by pearls? What's he talking about? What's he mean by don't cast the dogs what is holy? What's his point? This is really the key phrase, this, this idea of holy. Don't cast the dogs what is holy. Don't throw out to dogs what is holy. And it means something worthy of veneration, something that is sacred. Don't take something that is sacred and just throw it out there. And that's what we do with what? The kingdom? By the way, we live our lives. We cast it out there and we treat it like it's garbage. And it's not. It has great value. It has great worth. And we need to be careful with it. Because God has given it great value. That's the reason he compares it to pearls. Pearls in their day were priceless. Pearls were of great value. And you would be an idiot to take a bag full of pearls and throw it to a a herd of swine. They wouldn't appreciate it. They wouldn't know what to do with it. He goes on and says, they'll probably just turn and bite you. Once they bite into it and find out it's not edible. Don't focus on the pigs and the dogs. That's really not the point of the passage. It has much more to do with God's word and the kingdom of heaven. Because that's everything he's been talking about. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. So we treat the kingdom of heaven in a very negative way. And we cast it out there as if it has no value. The absurdity is that you cast it out there. Something that's holy. Something that is of great value. That's really the point that he's trying to make. It has nothing, it has little to do with who are the pigs and the dogs. Okay, so we need to value what God values. We need to care about the things he cares about. We need to treat the gospel and the kingdom of God with reverence and respect. And that shows up in our lives. And dogs don't respect what is holy. And again, I don't think he's calling certain people dogs. I don't think he's calling certain people swine. He's just saying you would be an idiot to take anything of value and throw it to something or someone who doesn't appreciate it. And, and I think there's a, there's a reason for that. It's an obvious reason because they, they're not going to appreciate it. They're going to treat it with disdain, disrespect. They don't see any value. And I do think there's a time when you share the gospel with somebody and they totally turn their nose up at it. They totally disdain it. They totally ridicule it. They totally disrespect it. And you say, okay, I'm done here. I do think there's a lesson to be learned there that can come from this verse. But I think first and foremost, it's telling us to value what God values. 
It's not about pigs and dogs. It's about the kingdom. Do you value the things of the kingdom? Remember what he said earlier. Where do you put your value? Where do you put your worth? Where's your heart? Where's your treasure? Is it in heaven or is it here? Do you treat the things of heaven with disdain? Or do you treat it as holy and sacred? I think that's the point he's trying to make. And the way we do it is the way we live our lives. And here's, here's probably the, the secondary lesson I think you can get out of this particular verse. Guys, don't, don't judge the lost world based on what you know about the Scriptures. Here's what I mean by that. We're to judge believers in sin, but he doesn't say judge the world. That's not my job. Paul just said, it's not my job to judge the outside, it's to judge those inside. Because what we do is we take what we know about the gospel and we take, we could easily take chapters 5 through 7 and we could walk around the streets of Fort Worth and we could start screaming at people that you're not living up to this lifestyle, you don't, you don't live up to God's commands, you're not holy, you're not, well of course they're not, they're lost. They're not going to get it, they're not going to understand it. And so what we do is we put on the lost world expectations or demands that we don't even live up to ourselves. Don't do it. Don't be judgmental of the world. Let the judgment begin, first of all, in your heart and then among your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't demand that the unsaved live like they're saved, but don't also just approve of their sin. And this is where the tolerance comes in. Tolerance is not love, it's hate as we just said earlier. So when you see people living in sin, we're not to just put up with it. We're not to just go, well, if you want to live that way, that's fine. I'm not to judge them, but at the same time, I am to speak into their lives. I'm to say, hey, I've got an answer. I I know a solution. I think that what you're doing is wrong, but here's why I think it's wrong. It's based on Scripture, not my opinion. But instead, we're told to just be tolerant. We're commanded to love our enemies, but we're not commanded to tolerate their behavior. And this is the the hard part for us as Christians is, you know, we've all heard and probably used the little statement, um, hate the sin, love the sinner. I find that really hard to pull off because I usually start hating the sinner because I view the sin through the sinner. So if it's a homosexual and I know they're homosexual, I see the sin, but I see the sin in the form of what? A sinner. So I judge the sinner, and I hate the sinner. I'm repulsed by the sinner. But see, that's not what we're to do. It's easy to say, hate the sin and love the sinner, but that's, that's hard to pull off. And yet I think the, the goal for us is to love the person, realize that their sin is sin, but so is my sin's sin, and I found grace and mercy, and I found forgiveness, and they can too, but they never will if no one ever tells them, and if no one ever loves them, and if no one ever wants to get to know them and have them in their home. But if we're repulsed by them and say, I don't want you near me, I don't want you around me, then they'll never hear. They'll never feel our love. They'll never feel acceptance. If you tolerate the sins of the world, you basically are casting the gospel to swine. It's not saying the lost are swine. It's just saying you're not valuing this gift that you've been given. So he's not calling the adulterer a swine. He's not calling the homosexual a swine, the transgender a swine. He's not calling the tax cheat a swine. He's just simply saying, 
If you tolerate their sin, you are basically saying the gospel has no power. Because they're not going to change. So we can't afford to devalue the kingdom. Tolerance says live like you want. Jesus says be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We read it a couple of weeks ago. He also said your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. See, God has a standard. God has goals. God has a way He wants us to live. And we're not to be tolerant. Well, the last one is self-sufficiency. And I find this one hard to believe, but I do it all the time. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be open. How many of you guys have heard this verse used as an evangelistic appeal at the end of a service? Okay, maybe it's just me. There were not enough Southern Baptists in the room. Um, my dad used this verse all the time. And he used it completely out of context. Because this is not an evangelistic verse. Jesus is not making an altar call at the end of his sermon. It's in the context, he's talking to people, and he's talking about the kingdom, he's talking about those who have been approved by God, and he says, ask, seek, and knock, right? So it's not evangelistic. Those three terms, ask, seek, and knock, are all imperatives. And in the Greek, they're present imperatives, and that basically means keep on knocking, keep on seeking, keep on asking. And they basically scream dependence, if you ask, you're dependent. I need help. I need this. I need that. If you seek, you're looking for something. You're, you're wanting to find something. You're in need of something. If you knock, you're making the effort to get help from somebody. So they, they scream reliance. And I think what Jesus is trying to tell us is living the Christian life is hard and you're going to need help. And you can't be autonomous. You can't do it in your own strength. But the, the thing about the, the Sermon on the Mount is a lot of people read it and they think this is just Jesus' recommendation, recommendations for living a good Christian life. And they try to do it and they fail because they do it in the flesh and it's not what Jesus intended. It's not to be done self-sufficiently. So we'll take the verse, I can do all things, and we leave out the second part, through Christ who strengthens me. Well, I'm a Christian, I have the Holy Spirit within me, I can do all things. Yeah, but you forgot the source of the power. It's Jesus Christ who gives me strength. It's not in the flesh. It's not in your own strength. So you can't live the kingdom life apart from God. Even Jesus, listen to what Jesus said. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Even Jesus needed help from God. Even Jesus needed help from the Holy Spirit of God. So then he takes another left turn and he starts talking about the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This verse goes directly with Matthew 5.17 and it's called an inclusio. I don't know why, but that's what it is. And it basically means that one verse fits with another verse later on and everything in between goes together. It's like brackets. And so you can see why, because they both talk about the law and the prophets. So he started out in 5.17 talking about the law and the prophets. He talks again in 7.12, the law and the prophets, and everything in between fits into that bracket because he's saying that love is the fulfillment of, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill both. We studied that several weeks ago. 
And so he's really talking about what is called the law of love. Just we're to love one another. Paul talks about it in Romans 13. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. Don't be in debt to anybody. It doesn't mean don't get into debt. It just means don't owe anything to anybody but love. You'll always be indebted to others for love. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. <coughs> so again, the inclusio is 517 to 712, and it's all about the law and the prophets, and it's all about love, and it means to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and we don't even get that, even though we know it. Because we don't live it out the way we're supposed to. And there's this dark side that I think is really important for us to understand about the golden rule. It's not going to be easy to do, right? It's hard to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Because you want them to do it unto you first. Right? You do it to me and then maybe I'll think about doing it to you unless it costs me something. That's not what Jesus intends. This, this living of the Christian life is incredibly difficult. And that's why he leads right into this last statement that we're going to end with. And it's, it's like another left turn. Because <coughs> he says, enter by the narrow gate. When did you start talking about gates? What happened to the specks? What happened to the pigs and the swine? Where are the pearls? Now you're talking about gates. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way easy it leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So now he's talking about this gate, this way to life, because that's what he says. It leads to life. It's narrow. It's restrictive. It's limiting. And this is where so many people have a problem with Christianity, because we, they talk, you're intolerant. You say you're the only way. Jesus Christ the only way. <coughs> that can't be true. I've got a 69-year-old brother who believes that. Why is Jesus the only way? Why isn't Buddha a way? Why isn't Muhammad a way? Why, why do you think you're the only way? Because Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's either right or he's a liar. It's, in, it's inclusive. <coughs> it's not inclusive. <coughs> he goes on <coughs> in Acts. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. One way, totally non-inclusive, totally intolerant, and non-accommodating. You got to do it his way. You don't get to do it your way. <coughs> and that is difficult. It's demanding. Living the Christian life is hard. That's, that's really what he's summing up. You can't do it. Don't be judgmental. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't treat the gospel lightly or unholy. But if you live this life as you've been called to live, there is a reward. It leads to life. So here's your questions. Before <coughs> I choke to death. Why do you think the spirit of judgmentalism is so dangerous to us as Christians? Why is that so dangerous and why are we so prone to want to do it? What does it say to the world around us, the lost world? When, and, and this is what they say about us. You're judgmental. You're, you're negative. You're hard. You're harsh. So why is this so important? And why did Jesus take the time to talk about it? Secondly, why do you think tolerance in the life of a believer would be like casting pearls before swine? When we just say, ah, let them do what they want to do. Who cares? I know I'm going to heaven. 
Why is that so dangerous? And why is it like casting pearls before swine? And then finally, Jesus said, we are to ask, seek, and knock. Why do we find it so hard to be dependent on God? He says, ask, seek, and knock. And it will be given unto you. I'm not going to give you a snake. I'm not going to give you a rock. I'm going to give you good gifts. Why, why do we find it so hard to ask and seek and not? Well, let me pray for you. And, and don't forget, when you're done, take your table, fold it up, lay it down, and stack your chairs in eights and do it quietly. That's the challenge. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the conviction of the word of God. That sometimes, Lord, it hits us in the forehead like a brick. And that's what we need to wake us up, to challenge us, to get us to realize that we have work to do, but we're not to do it in the flesh. We're not to do it by ourselves. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God, and we have the body of Christ. Father, it's my prayer tonight around these tables that we would hold each other accountable, that we would speak into each other's lives and challenge one another to live the Christian life with integrity so that it would show up in every area of our lives and that, Father, we would call each other out about our judgmentalism that we would want to be men who speak truth into one another's lives and into the world around us. So bless the time around the tables. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.